Welcome to Civics and Coffee. My name is Alicia and I am a self-professed history nerd. Each week, I'm going to chat about a topic on U.S. history and give you both the highlights and occasionally break down some of the complexities in history and share stories you may not remember learning in high school, all in the time it takes to enjoy a cup of coffee. Hey everyone, welcome back. So we've talked about the run-up to the Constitution and why it was needed. We dove into what compromises had to be made in order to get the delegates to sign on to committing yet another act of treason by signing the Constitution. And I did a deep dive into the Constitution itself, pre-Bill of Rights. Given all that, at the end of the day, it was still just a document. Article 7 of the Constitution clearly put out the steps in which the document would become more than just a political essay about a new way of doing things. In order to become the law of the land, the Constitution needed to be ratified by at least nine of the 13 states. And only those who ratified it would be bound by it. So, how did the authors, known as Federalists, convince the various states to ratify the Constitution? It's not as easy as you'd think. Grab your cup of coffee, peeps. Let's do it. After the delegates at the Constitutional Convention finished signing their draft of a new government in secret, they routed it to the Confederate Congress to review and hoped they would send it on to the states for ratification. To say the Congress was perturbed would be putting it mildly. They debated for two days whether to censure the delegates for exceeding their authority before ultimately deciding to drop the matter and move forward with the ratification process. On September 28th, the Confederation Congress told state legislators to plan state ratifying conventions. The conventions would serve two purposes. First, it would allow states to choose to accept or ratify the new government. And second, it would give delegates an opportunity to provide details of the proposal to the public. Remember, the convention held in Philadelphia was done under the strictest of secrecy. Therefore, only the delegates present knew what was discussed and how the decisions were made in crafting the document. And so the race was on to get as many people in support of the new government as possible. But not everyone was in favor of the proposed Constitution. You may remember the term Federalist and Anti-Federalist from your time back in high school history, but what do those terms actually mean? Well, once the dust settled at the end of the Constitutional Convention, you had two sides of the argument. Individuals who were in favor of ratification, or Federalists, and those who were opposed to ratification, known as Anti-Federalists. Both sides of the arguments had some strong and influential people in their corner. On the side of the Anti-Federalists, there was Thomas Jefferson and Edmund Randolph. Randolph, if you remember, is the guy Madison used to introduce the Virginia Plan at the convention. So why would a guy who was so vocal in proposing such an influential part of the Constitution all of a sudden do a 180? Well, he was nervous about trusting a single individual as the chief executive, and he was worried the document was not Republican enough, meaning not enough involvement by the people. He actually did not sign the Constitution at the end of the convention, despite his significant contributions. Anti-Federalists, in general, were against the idea of a large, centralized government, and felt the Articles of Confederation could be edited to fit the needs of the country. Additionally, they were concerned about the new government being representative of only those few who were well-off, and therefore the system was built inherently in their favor. 
They were also fearful of the amount of power being given to the central government, and that worry was compounded, in their mind, by the absence of a clear statement of rights that could not be encroached on by the federal government. On the Federalist side, you had individuals like John Jay, James Madison, and Alexander Hamilton. These were individuals dedicated to the ratification and implementation of the new government. Initially, the Federalists were against the idea of including a Bill of Rights in the Constitution, arguing that the document as written did not give the federal government the power to encroach on the liberties of the people. The Federalists also argued that states had included individual freedoms in their state constitutions, and therefore there was no need to do the double duty of writing them into the Constitution. Also, a funny piece of trivia, once the Federalists relented and agreed to look into a Bill of Rights, James Madison considered writing in the changes into the Constitution itself as opposed to a separate list of rights. Luckily, he was talked out of this. The Constitution, it was argued, was being ratified as is. It would be against the rules of the document itself to make changes that the people did not get a chance to vote on. Can you imagine what our Constitution would have looked like without the Bill of Rights listed so prominently as our first ten amendments? And though we are all told about the Federalist Papers in school, they were prompted as a response to some essays arguing against the new Constitution. Written days after the Constitution was sent to the Confederate Congress for review and under the pseudonym Cato, these anti-Federalist essays worked to highlight the flaws and concerns of those who were against the large-scale government. The authors of the anti-Federalist essays were much less organized than their opponents. Anyone who has seen the Broadway musical knows there was a particular guy who was truly dedicated to getting the Constitution ratified by any means necessary. While three men contributed essays, it was really Hamilton who carried the weight, writing 50 of the 84 entries. And Hamilton was very thorough in his arguments, debating each point at length. Though seen today as 85 essays, original publishers actually split one of Hamilton's longer essays, number 31, into two separate pieces and renumbered them accordingly. The first Federalist essay, known as Federalist I, appeared in the Independent Journal, a New York newspaper, in October of 1787. Hamilton explained the importance of reviewing the Constitution and considering it fully, writing the people had to decide, quote, whether societies of men are really capable or not of establishing good government from reflection and choice, or whether they are forever destined to depend for their political constitutions on accident and force, end quote. And though we refer to them as the Federalist Papers today, they were not really intended to be a volume on a defense of the Constitution. The essays arguing back and forth as to whether or not the Constitution should be ratified played out primarily in the New York press. It was only later that they were compiled and turned into the Federalist Papers. It took 10 months to get the required nine states to ratify the Constitution and officially end the Articles of Confederation. Delaware was the first state to ratify on December 7, 1787, with unanimous approval. And with the exception of Rhode Island, at least one signer of the Constitution from each state showed up to their state's ratifying convention to share the story of what happened in the drafting of the Constitution. I'm telling you, peeps, they were on message. But it wasn't as easy as we may think today. There was a real chance that the efforts to replace the Articles would fail and the Federalists would lose their bid to further strengthen the central government. For example, things got really heated at Pennsylvania's convention. 
Their assembly session was about to come to an end, and the members were debating whether to call a special convention. This was prior to Congress even sending the Constitution to the states to ratify. Anti-Federalists within the chamber tried to block this by refusing to attend the final days of the session. Committed to the cause, the Federalists of the group located the members in hiding and dragged them back to the State House. Once on the floor, the representatives were locked in and therefore provided the quorum, or number of individuals needed, to hold the vote. The Federalists won. Massachusetts was seen as the first real test of the ratification, where two influential members, John Hancock and Samuel Adams, were against ratification. Both gentlemen were big proponents of self-government and felt the Constitution was too close to a monarchy. There was a month-long debate about whether or not to ratify the Constitution and was one of the closer votes, passing by a vote of 187 to 168. Hancock eventually shifted positions when the Federalists promised the Constitution would include a Bill of Rights guaranteeing the rights of citizens. And while the Constitution had the nine states needed to ratify, with New Hampshire voting to approve on June 21, 1788, there were still two big contenders outstanding, New York and Virginia. As I've said, the Constitution spelled out that only those states who ratified it would be bound by its rules. So, while nine states had adopted the Constitution, if big states like New York and Virginia failed to ratify, the country that would be left would have very little in economic power and influence. These large, commercially successful states were needed to lend legitimacy to the new government. In Virginia, several Anti-Federalists were on hand at the ratifying convention to voice their opposition. In attendance was Patrick Henry, George Mason, who authored the Virginia Bill of Rights, and future President James Monroe. One of the key issues for them was also the lack of a Bill of Rights and questions around amendments. On June 25, 1788, Virginia came in as the 10th state to ratify when enough Anti-Federalists moved forward and voted for approval with the recommendation to review amendments at the first session of Congress. That left New York. New York was considered the hardest state to convince. Of the three delegates sent to the Constitutional Convention in 1787, two of them were against throwing out the Articles of Confederation. Anti-Federalists were in key positions of power throughout the state and would be the majority of delegates elected to the convention, with 46 Anti-Federalists to just 19 Federalists. Being such a key battleground for ratifying explains why so much press about the issue was written and how we eventually got those Federalist Papers. New York was in the middle of debate for their ratifying convention when they received word that New Hampshire had become the pivotal ninth state needed to ratify the Constitution. They continued debating, vying for concessions and amendments, until they heard Virginia had voted to ratify. Once Virginia was on board, there was a palpable shift from strict opposition to attempts at compromise. Playing into the shift, New York was facing threat of secession from the southern part of the state if they failed to ratify the Constitution. These facts came into alignment, and many Anti-Federalists made the decision to try to change the things they did not like about the Constitution from the inside. On July 26th, New York ratified the Constitution with a vote of 30 to 27 on the condition that their proposed amendments would be considered. Following New York in 1789, North Carolina voted in favor of ratification to become the 12th state to do so on November 21st. So, what about lonely Rhode Island? 
Rhode Island was a thorn in the side of the rest of the country and were indignant in their opposition to the whole process. If you remember, Rhode Island refused to send representatives to the Constitutional Convention and originally refused to even host a ratifying convention. Only after being threatened with economic isolation did Rhode Island finally relent and host their convention. On May 29, 1790, in the closest vote for ratification throughout all of the states, Rhode Island ratified the Constitution, 34 to 32, and sent a number of alterations it wanted considered. After three long years, the United States finally had itself a brand new government, and the first session of Congress had quite a large task, reviewing the various amendments requested by the states, which came to be known as the Bill of Rights. But that's for next week. To learn more about this episode, be sure to check out the website civicsandcoffee.com where you can get show notes and learn how you can support the show. Thanks for tuning in, and I hope you enjoyed this episode of Civics and Coffee. If you want to hear more small snippets from American history, be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for joining me, and I look forward to our next cup of coffee together.